Well, the fallout of the pandemic continues to surprise us in a myriad of ways, and one that is starting to have major implications for the property market is the rising cost of building materials. Who will this hurt the most? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're joined by Mike Mortlock of MCG Quantity Surveyors and Mike is an industry leader in tax depreciation, knows the cost of building inside out and is a bit of a data geek to boot. We've seen you before on this podcast, I think episode 6128 <laughs> and uh, one half of the trolls in December 2021. It's nice to see you again, Mike, and you're with your serious hat on today. Yeah, well, as much as I've I've got one, we'll give it a red hot go. Thanks for inviting me back, <laughs> Mike. Good to chat. It is a serious topic, to be honest, because we're seeing this play out um, with a lot of our clients. Uh, you know, we've got clients who want to buy houses, who have bought houses that want to do renovations, and they can't get you know building quotes, and um, you know can't even get the numbers. You've got clients who are mid construction. We've had clients with builders have walked away from them mid-construction um, and builders have gone bust. So it's a huge issue out there. I mean, can you give our listeners a bit of an understanding of, you know, I guess the big issues at a macro level in terms of supply, but then also on a micro level in different cities where, you know, labour shortages, etc. Um, what are you seeing out there? Yeah, look, there's a there's a lot of moving parts to it and it's affecting people in, in various levels for various reasons. I mean, if you think about when the pandemic uh, started. You've got the issue of people not being able to go overseas uh, and you know do their annual skiing trip in Aspen. Uh, I've just I've just been reading your diary, Veronica. Um, so they've obviously got their surplus money and they're sitting around their house, going, you know what? I really hate this place. Uh, let's do something to it. So uh, for me, that was kind of really the start of the of the shortage of tradies because they're so mm. so busy. And then we had builders that were actually worried about activity during the pandemic that were really competing each other to sign up building contracts and then of course they get to the point where these are fixed price contracts the materials are so crazy that they're actually walking away from the deals and some of them going under so on the small you know to to start off with there was a huge increase in renovation activity but the real kind of macro problem is just the availability of of materials you think about the the timber mills that might have you know a, a big workforce that have just shut down or they might have minimum staff. I mean, with the restrictions to uh, construction work on site, you know, we, we do a lot of progress claims for financiers and they might only, they might have a limit that they can only have five people on that site for a particular point in time. And really that just shuts the whole thing down. So there's a myriad of factors that are leading to these construction cost price uh, increases. Labor is definitely one of them. There's not enough tradies out there, not enough builders to, to take on the work, but materials has been the big one. So is it just a, an Australian issue or is the world renovating and the world build, building homes through the pandemic? It's a good question. I don't have the data on renovation uh, across the globe. I, I would assume that, that that they would be sort of having a similar situation there, but certainly materials. I mean, the, a lot of the materials are coming from a, a variety of different countries, you know, depending on whether it's timber or concrete or just even, you know, prefabricated sort of cabinetry stuff. Uh, th- there's a global problem with materials. Do you think it's a supply of that material? As in like they can't uh, produce the same quantity as they were producing before or it's just literally a demand problem? They can't make enough of it so such, you know, because all the world's wanting more timber or concrete or steel or et cetera. Yeah, we, we were talking to a, a timber truss company not that long ago and, and they basically said we could, we could, we could run 24 hours a day um, with our workforce and still not keep up with demand, demand, and then the question is, okay, well, why don't you ramp up the production, get the people in the door, you know, make it happen? He said, well, we can't get the materials, um, so there's there's so much demand that can't be met by the the, the materials not being available. 
Is this all sort of kicked along initially by the federal government's, you know, home builder? Yeah. Simulation is this sort of like the whole snowball effect? That yeah. Unanticipated consequences. Who who'd have thought of you know policy decisions being made in Canberra and then the real world implications have some unintended consequences? <laughs> we haven't seen that before. <laughs> well, the irony of it all is that at the moment you've got um, so yes, you had this profitless boom. I've read you know uh, because builders are not making profits because they've gone fixed price contracts and they're doing all this work. They're busier than ever, but they look at their takeaway because the costs and the labours have gone up. They're not making any money on these and they underpriced them because they were so desperate to get work um, at the start of the, the pandemic as well. So, I mean, then you've got builders going bust and then you've also got builders that are unwilling to sort of do deals now because they're unsure about materials. So we're going to see this, you know, ramp up in, you know, more housing and units, et cetera, and then this real depression where there's not many builders left in terms of the number um, or not many people willing to take on work because they're so concerned that they're going to lose money on it and go under. So what we built in those years is going to be a shortfall over the next few years. So what do you think about that? Yeah, that, that's very possible. We take, for example, uh, we were talking to uh, a company that uh, does pools, uh, mostly residential style stuff and they've got orders through to 2023 uh, and because they're not sure of what's going to happen with materials people are signing contracts on these pools with no actual indicated price so people are kind of saying i just want a damn pool yeah if it goes up 60 percent on what it is now i'm prepared to pay it because these people are just booked out so far so if you've got the money everything's going to be okay. Hasn't that always been the case, right? But people are just paying a premium and it's, you know, it's just got to that point where, you know, the people that can afford it are the ones that get it. I mean, the Sydney housing uh, market is is the same, right? You've got so much emotional buying out there and people are saying to their buyer's agents, as I'm sure you would know, Veronica, that I don't care what it costs, just I just get it, just I want it, right? <laughs> Not my clients. Not yours, All you educate all my clients care what it costs. There's still a budget and for every one of those people pushing the price up, there's a whole bunch of other people that can't that do have to care about what it costs. Yeah. I was talking to my architect the other day and he was saying that insulation has gone up 30%. Yeah. Um, and he said, if you can get it, that is. So if you can get it, it's 30% than what you priced it into the deal. So no wonder builders are under um, real pressure if they ha- even if they haven't cut their price to get the deal or to get the build in the first place fixed price contract you know it's all wonderful um when you've got a fairly constrained you know supply market um for materials but um you know and it's hard because nobody will want to sign a fixed price contract anymore and like you're saying there people are prepared to sign a contract with no price on it which is pretty Mm. impressive um i can't see many people when they're renovating their homes mainly because you know it's it's so expensive anyway but also in a heated property market where you're paying big dollars to buy the property in the first place, if you bought to then renovate, that is, yeah. then there's going to be some real pressure um, coming on. But I, I also think just trying to sign a contract with a builder without having any, you know, without any prices on it effectively, yeah. that's just open-ended. No one has access to money. Well, very few people have access to money that is so un- unfettered. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, what's this going to mean? Is it going to mean that people leave the industry, like you're suggesting there, Chris, and then there's going to be no builders? Is it going to mean that, that um, yeah, I, I, what's, how is this going to roll out, I wonder? Yeah, like pool, pools are, a, I suppose, a smaller ticket item than yep. a whole house, right? Mm. Um, so we're not likely to see people signing a contract with, you know, no price on it. But what we might see is a lot of builders wanting to go to cost, pl- um, cost mm. plus contracts where they're basically saying, look, we're going to charge you a margin on the labour and materials. So that way as materials go up, uh, then that's sort of priced in and it's passed on to the consumer. Now, typically that's not a normal sort of residential uh, construction contract unless, say, someone is not sure, they don't have all the documentation, the design squared away. They want to be able to make changes as they go. It's it's quite an expensive way to build mm. to be able to do that, but it prices in, you know, the ability to be flexible and change things, which, you know, does cost the builder. But you think about a lot of these builders that, you know, in the residential space might be working on an 8% margin. You know, you've got insulation going up 30% and probably the worst example 
example is is timber where where there was up to a 70% increase on wow. on timber costs um an 8% margin there's not a lot of fat in materials to be out to be fluctuating see 8% so if you're doing a 100 million dollar build or Billion dollar build, you know, it's not that much money they make really once starts, things start blowing out. I mean, we saw Pro Build go under and they're a pretty big, I'm not sure if they're privately owned or, or not, but they're a pretty big builder in Australia, right? I think they've got like, you know, how many billion of projects going on, Mike? Do you know yeah. much about them? Yeah, look, they were South African um, backed as, as far as I understand. They have, I, don't quote me on this, but I think there was around about 500 employees, which is not a, a, a tremendous yeah. amount, but the network of subcontractors is likely sort of five times that, right? So yeah. a lot of these big co- companies, they, you know, have people to run them, but the people that are doing the construction are all sort of trickled down subcontractors. And, and that's where you see the issues of, of people running in to grab their tools before the site's locked up, right? Like not is it, not only is it you know making sure they get the tools, but if if you are if you are let's say a, a small to medium sized painter or ca- cabinet yep. maker, you know you might be kind of thinking, look, this is this is a big business. I'm in with those guys, so I'm mm. going to just kind of not worry about diversification. And yeah, you know they owe me five hundred grand, but they they're, they're pretty good for it after ninety to 120 days and now it's yeah. the concern about the cents on the dollar. I don't know uh, the specifics about pro build and how much uh, subbies yeah. could potentially be hung out to dry, but you see it You see it quite often. Yeah. Do, do you think that developers right now would be um, got the guts to go and sell things at certain prices? Because, you know, you you're build. talking... Yeah, we'll build. I mean, you mm. might have to get thirty percent of the, the building sold before you can go and get development finance. But oh, I see you still got it. <laughs> yes. like, you know, and they're like, well, if I sell it for a million dollars, I make eight percent margin. But if my costs go up, then I make nothing. Or maybe I've got to get a bigger margin. So I've got to try to sell them at one point one, and just to protect myself. And I don't know if I was a developer, you'd have to be pretty gutsy and a lot of cash in the bank to go against the the material potential future yeah. rises and. Um, now, would you just focus on land banking now? I've been sort of tracking a few things and can see that developers have been still out there buying, you know, greenfielder sites and, you know, city sites for apartments, et cetera. Um, I just wonder whether we're going to see this real lull in, in builders saying, well, we're just going to pl- – until we know things start levelling off and we know what timber costs are going to be when we build, we're not going to sort of take that risk because the margins are just so tight. Yeah, I mean, it, ma- it, it, it makes sense. The, the world is – sort of getting back to normal so it's not likely to to last for forever but you know it's a bit like we we heard the stories about places like Harvey Norman making the punt that the the pandemic's happening we're going to order you know unprecedented amount of stock because we're we're sort of hedging our bets that this stuff's going to walk off the shelves and they obviously made a killing on that we've seen quite a lot of uh, builders actually sort of stockpile materials and even builders going to Bunnings and you know ripping the shelves off the timber. I'm doing some landscaping at the moment. And I couldn't get any timber posts the other day, um, which is great. I got my weekends back, and I'll do it eventually. But you know, it's it's one of those things. Uh, the developers, I think, uh, the builders that have, have have got that kind of stock, then that's great. Mm. But they can only sort of store it and look after it for so long. Yeah. That eight percent margin is is more based on the cookie cutter style um, yeah. home builders that are building the same sort of stuff. Uh, the margins would be bigger on some of the the boutique stuff but I guess it depends who the who the client is uh, and the, and how the contract's structured but I, I, you know it, I'd be nervous going into going into uh, these developments with with what has happened and you know how long is it going to take for things to get back to normal I'm not sure there's a lot of pent-up demand and build a bidding cost over time have they generally risen you know quite sustainably you know three four percent a year or is yeah. and do they go back down in sort of price i mean once rises uh building costs you know rise do they just stay there you know because um you know and so we might get this new you know floor in terms of what it's going to cost to build a home per square meter and then they don't want to go back to the days when it was you know much tighter margins they, they do go up and down and this is where veronica did warn people that i'm a bit of a data nerd you can look at uh, the building price indices o- over the years and and that's how depreciation guys like myself calculate how much it was to build something in say 1989 compared to today yep. it's it's indexed on a monthly basis typically it's 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 always sort of been around cpi plus one percent as a year-on-year increase so it has been fairly flat but there were 
were periods where it definitely spiked and periods where it dropped off. I mean, you think about if you if you look at the building price indices and see how they move, you can you can actually track things like um, union activity and cyclones. Like if there's a cyclone in in Queensland, you see timber price timber prices go up. If there's a you know increase in union activity and CBD sort of building markets, you see labour prices go up. So, no, to answer your question, it it. it this is this is the craziest increase that I've ever seen in in my career, and I assume that probably would be the same case for anyone that's alive uh, and and much older than me. It's going to be the same. They're normally pretty stable. So, what's the index then currently? I mean, if it goes up month, if you measure it monthly, yeah. what, what are the what's the figures? Be good if I had that data. <laughs> this is the trouble when you say we're talking about the rental loss index and then we're going to uh, construction. Did- I can furnish you uh, with that. I- I'm not sure exactly yeah. when the last one has, has been released. We're sort of ticking on to a, a, a new month and they tend to be a little bit delayed. And the building price index is also a little bit unusual that it comes um, it comes from Department of Foreign Affairs and it's looking at more um, government works rather than, say, residential stuff. So places like the HIA... Um, uh, probably plugged in a little bit better um, than me in that, and that's where we're we're seeing more of the data about the increase of of materials compared to one another, like the timber and the the insulation and that sort of stuff. But um, yes, I, I mean, can I can get that to you. I will have a look at that data when you, when you do get it. But I mean, you mentioned before about cost plus contracts. I mean, mm. that's fine if you're doing you know a bathroom or you're doing your kitchen or you know maybe you're doing changing windows or flooring and you know, things that maybe you can fund from cash or you can, you know, cosmetic things that you can sort of fund from equity, I guess, that isn't going to break the bank. But, you know, if you wanted to do extensions and add floors and, um, or, you know, even a knockdown rebuild, et cetera, this is where, you know, you're going to have to go to a bank most of the time because people can't uh, get access to that equity. They just haven't got that much. Um, Mm. Banks can't give it, won't give it to them if they know it's for a build, for example. Um, and they're going to have to need a fixed price contract, but banks are very scared of cost plus at the moment. Um, before it was a case by case basis. If you could sort of show the complexity why it had to be, maybe it was a really big build. Maybe they've got other mitigating factors in terms of other assets, and you could really sell it to the bank why they should still take it as a cost plus. Mm. Um, but at the moment, it's, it's literally a blanket no because they know that that could be anything. You know, yeah. they have no idea what the labour cost is going to be or the material cost. So. It's sort of like it should be a great time for builders, I feel, because we've seen as house prices rise um, a lot, people can't afford to upgrade. They can't, not just the bigger mortgage they've got to take on, but then you've got stamp duty costs is increased, you know, selling costs, um, et cetera. Um, so they're going to get get stuck in their house, I guess. They can't afford to upgrade. They don't want to leave the suburbs. So they, so they get forced to renovate, mm. but then they go and get a, can't get a you know a fixed price contract, so they're sort of stuck. They can't renovate, they can't upgrade, mm. um, and it's a real tricky thing for people at the moment uh, because. So then they go look to do cosmetic things, but a lot of cosmetic things you don't want to do until you've done your structural things. Yeah. Um, so you just you're going to redo work. So, I mean, what sort of like you know do you think that uh, building materials will sort of go back to sort of prices in the next sort of 12, 18 months? Is there anything you're sort of hearing where? you know, things are starting to get better or do you do you really think this will play out for a few more years, especially with things that, you know, in the, in the Russian world that's happening mm. at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty crazy what's going on over there. Uh, and, and how many building materials come from the Ukraine? Well, Is it a big supplier of anything particular? They, they've, they've got all sorts of weird stuff like, you know, platinum and some precious metals like that. In terms of nuts and bolts building materials, I couldn't tell you exactly what an impact Ukraine in isolation uh, would have. I think there's there's obviously a huge amount of value in that country from from Putin's eyes, right? Yes. And I mean, this is kind of a weird situation where we've got people fleeing Kiev, um, turning up, you know, at probably refugee camps and, and saying like, where do I park? You know, we're used to people fleeing war zones, uh, you know, on foot in poverty, mm. but there's, a, there's, there's obviously wealth in the Ukraine. It's pretty terrible what's going on there. But to answer your your question, I think it's got a little while to play out. I think the timber mills and things like that, they're back up and running. You know, the economies need to get 
back and moving, but it, it, it's going to take mm. a little while for things to to settle down. And you know, cost cost plus contracts. Um, you know, there's 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 an inbuilt kind of um, conflict in that. The, there's no incentive for for the builder to to finish in a hurry or to source yep. materials in a cheap way. So they're they're not they're not a very popular way uh, to build. And I think it, it could and it should be a, a good time uh, for for builders if. If people are prepared to, to pay the increase in the materials, it's just the competition at the beginning of the pandemic where they were kind of worried that there might not be any activity at all and they're fighting over one another and, and fighting each other on margins. And then the fixed price contracts where um, they're having to absorb these materials costs, you know, there's there's a number of them that have gone bankrupt and, and ProBuild might not necessarily be the last. But, you know, it, it, it there's also... Um, situations where natural disasters are actually taking the labour force away. I mean, even before mm. the situation now uh, in in northern New South Wales and southeast Queensland, I was talking to one of the top, uh, they would probably be top five builders in Australia, and they were saying that they can't get roofers uh, because of the because of the cyclones. The, the insurance companies were just paying them double. And these were roofers that were prepared to say, you know, um, no thanks to what would be a very cushy sort of supply of work over the long time. They would be, you know, not having to worry about um, getting work for the next little while, but they're chasing the dollars and doing the insurance work. Uh, and I think that's going to be a big problem uh, in Queensland with the insurance stuff. I mean, obviously, there's there's the issues with flood cover and is that capped and have people opt out or was it not included? Then we've got to try and find this labour force to come and do the rectification works when everything's already um, stressed from a labour availability and material shortage point of view i really feel for the people suffering from that at the moment well let's remember though that the people in the south coast of new south wales from the bushfires you know end of not in end of oh, 19 19 and 20 there's people still down there living in caravans because they can't get builders to build yep um they haven't got enough supply so you know they're uh, out of anybody they're the worst off because they're a they've been waiting the longest and b who would have thought this would happen in terms of costs? Um, I mean, it's very true, actually, because the time you actually recover from the traumatic event and start thinking maybe we should rebuild the house and then you sort of get the money from insurance and you start getting designs and lock in a builder, it could take you, you know, a good 12, 18 months, right? And that's where we are today almost, you know, mm. it's sort of mid last year. And when we were down Batemans Bay in January, and, um, yeah, there's literally, you could see house after house getting built down there. So, yeah. you know, it takes years down the line. So... Um, yeah, it's a sort of a big problem that's built. Is there a bit of a premium, though, on builds versus your postcodes when you're doing um, your analysis of what it's going to cost? Is there like a Mossman factor, you know what I mean, <laughs> in terms of, um, you know, it's much co- more expensive to build the exact same house in Mossman as it is in Mollymook or another M place, <laughs> Mildura? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a bit like um, going and buying a cake and say, you know, can I have a celebration cake instead of, say, a wedding cake, right? <laughs> One costs double. Um, you know, you think of places like Mossman, a, a lot of the builders, yeah, they kind of think, well, this person can afford to, to pay for it. But it's also potentially a pain in the backside with site access if they're doing bigger works as well. So there are mm. actually some additional costs. Uh, and you think about, you know, the, the tradies, are they wanting to work in, in, in Mossman on the smaller jobs or go elsewhere where you know that it's not necessarily the premium stuff that they're doing so yes that is a factor and then when you take that on a larger scale it, you know it costs costs more to build in say cairns than it does in brisbane just because you've got to have you know the labor force there you've got to move the materials and that sort of stuff so um there, there are, of course, um, the building price indices which track the costs over time, but there's also regional indices that tend to stay a little bit more flat where it just costs that extra percentage more to build. Um, even, say, from Newcastle to Sydney, there's a couple of percent difference. Will migration solve our labour problems? Because, you know, a lot of people say that, but, you know, skilled ma- labour, does that does that qualify? I don't think it does, you know, if you're a chippy or an electrician. I don't mm. think you can get a, you know, a four, five, seven or whatever the skilled migrant visa is, I forget the code. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I mean, tourists, you know, those sort of backpackers coming here for a year, maybe they do a bit of labouring, et cetera. So maybe we get that sort of, you know, people visiting for a couple of years, but that may not come, you know, straight away. So will migration solve this in the short term in terms of giving us a lot of um, new labour? 
It, it definitely could. I mean, you I'm sort of thinking back to building sites I've been in Melbourne in the last couple of years and, you know, you would see um, complete trades just being owned by a certain nationality. Like it might <laughs> be, you know, a bunch of Afghani tilers and you say to the, you know, to the builder, like, what's going on with just Afghans doing the tiling? I don't know. They just came out of somewhere and they're pretty good at it and they don't complain. So they've got the work sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, that that is part of the solution. Uh, and then it's just a matter of the materials. But, yeah, I, I think if we're opening the borders, uh, we, we can't really sort of service the things that need to be done at the moment. I mean, you talk to anyone in hospitality that's trying to get people to, to wait tables or something, that's always been something traditionally that has been done by the backpackers or the, you know, the international students picking up those jobs. I guess, you know, COVID has been interesting for so many ways. I mean, there's so many things, changes that have happened in, in our society and in the way we operate um, that have been accelerated like a decade's worth of change that's happened in a year. And it's also shown, put a spotlight on, on a lot of things, like the hospitality worker situation. You know, there's been a lot of um, a lot of noise around that, around the 457 visas, because that was taken away from them, wasn't it, some, mm. some years back. And I guess, you know, if you're not in hospitality, you don't pay too much attention to it. If you can go to your cafe and get served and you can go and have a meal and all the rest of it, but then all of a sudden you can't. But also... I think it's been interesting to watch, you know, our rollout coming out of, of lockdown mentality into living with COVID. And if you look, think back to our episode with Brendan Coates back in last year, it was 195, I think it was. And he was sort of, we were talking about the, the plan, you know, the, the, uh, the unlocking plan and are they being completely truthful with us? And I suspect not now because you look back and you think, we're now living with COVID to the point that I think I read somewhere that even if you have COVID, it's no longer required that you stay at home. It's recommended. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, um, like I was talking to my sister. She lives in Italy. And, of course, I can't believe my family over there have not had COVID. It's a miracle. But yeah. she was saying her little boy, Tommy, is 11. And in his class, you know, basically he's always a kid with COVID, so the whole class has to isolate. But now it's down to, oh, only five kids needs to isolate. So this whole idea of us living with COVID and just getting on with it um, is, you know, like, well, we're just going to be sick, you know, all of yeah. us are going to be sick all the time. But but we're, we'll be still at work. And I think that yeah. <laughs> as opposed to what happened over December, mm. you know, when we had these massive, you know, knock-on effects, supply chains in the supermarkets, very visible to all of us mm. in terms of what actually happens when people are home sick. Um, is this, you know... Once we're back at work and once we've got migrants here and once we don't care about getting COVID anymore and hopefully no new strain comes, it's worse than any of the other strains, all that sort of stuff. How, I mean, can we go back to normal, do you think, in, in this in this regard? With, with And I'm talking about, I know that you probably go, well, I'm not an expert supply chain um, <laughs> expert in the building market, <laughs> but is there any precedent for, I know that the prices of, the rises have been unprecedented, but is there any precedent for once all the factors go back to normal, if there's a normal, that we just see it level off again and go back to normal? If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. It's a it's a big question, uh, I know, Veronica. I know. I'm sorry about that. And uh, no, that's all right. I'll 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 do my best. I, I think I think there's um there's a lot of kind of forced experiments going on with COVID at the moment. You know, from the little things like, are we all going to be on Zoom as much in a year's mm. time? You know, like I was talking to two different cab drivers in the CBD of Sydney uh, just last week, and they bothly both sort of said. You know, two weeks ago, the people started coming back. One said that they thought about 70% of people were back. The other one said 45%. So a greater sample size would hopefully (laughs) cut cut, cut that down a little bit. But yeah, I I guess it it remains to be seen. I I think the the COVID situation has been a forced experiment for for all of us to see, can we run our business without necessarily catching up with people? Can we send our employees home? Can we work at home from um, with employees? And, you know, know, perhaps educate our children. Uh, thankfully, 
uh, haven't had to worry about that myself. Uh, so yeah, look, I, I think I think we're going to get back to a level of normality, but the, we're probably going to find that there are changes that that happen. Some some for good, um, perhaps not all of them, but I think probably the majority of things that we've adopted with with COVID are going to to stick around. And and building prices that you know they've they've got to equal out at some point, right? Like there's mm. there's a huge demand for these materials, so that you know that timber trust company that's saying like we need the stuff because we've got the orders, we're ready to go. You know, obviously they're going to be demanding that stuff and the, and the suppliers are going, okay, well, this is boom times for us, let's let's get it out there. And there might be that sort of short-term gold rush where they're making a fair bit of money and maybe de- developers and tradies and that sort of thing are, are all the same. You know, it's a great time to be a tradie in Australia. There's so much work yeah. going out there. And sometimes I think like if I was to run my business the way I've had interactions with tradies, I'd be bankrupt, right? You just, mm. they say, I'll call you. I'll, I'll be there on Wednesday at seven and nobody shows up and then they don't answer their phone and you have to talk to four or five other ones. It's, uh, I don't think it's necessarily because they don't care. It's just they don't, they don't, well, they don't need to care. There's so many opportunities mm. out there for them. Yeah. I mean, it's not just residential, right? We're talking commercial, uh, we're talking industrial, we're talking infrastructure, government projects, you know, all over the world, you know that are demanding materials. Low interest rates are encouraging people to sort of invest in projects and governments to stimulate their economies, et cetera. So it is a bit of a perfect storm mm. in terms of this real push for demand and, um, you know, to get out of this sort of pandemic when, you know, to, to push the countries forward. I do think the lockdown thing was actually a really big issue. I was talking to a client who's in a construction company and the issues they had tracking their staff um, where they were, were they isolating, were they not, who was on site, who wasn't, and um, them trying to talk to each other and shutting down sites and, um, you know, getting penalties if you're late and who's liable for that, is it the government or is it the builder? And, um, yeah, and it was a really tough time, he said, that um, for the business because they just didn't know where what was happening. Everything was just stalling and yeah. nothing was getting moving forward. And so hopefully those lockdown things... Like you said, Veronica, maybe we won't see those lockdowns again. If the building materials start to get a bit more normality and then labour starts to sort of flatline a little bit more with, um, yeah, with, with migration and maybe people are, you know, not getting as many people willing to sort of sign contracts, et cetera. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe in a couple of years it starts to really level off. I'll tell you what is interesting, though, is that it just shows how the whole building industry still relies on human beings to do the work. Mm. You know, you can do prefab all you like, you know, at the end of the day. um, And and throughout the whole supply chain, by the sounds of it, there's very, very high-touch industry. So I think that that's that's sort of probably an interesting thing. A lot of people are talking about automating, automating, automating to be a solution to things. And certainly, you know, there's been some, some structural change to businesses, such as the use of Zoom. And I know, I hell, I use so much more um, Zoom and Google Meet now. I, I didn't like using it before. Now I prefer using it. Yeah, you know? so because it's, it's inefficient, right? Like yeah, if, I know. If you if you sort of think, oh, you know, I, I probably should have known that that was a meeting that never was going to go anywhere. But you might have driven 20 minutes and mm. bought a coffee and then, you know, you're having to sort of be polite because you can't really sort of shut it off after five minutes and you're just kind of hanging out there, right? Or maybe you should be. I don't know, Veronica, you probably just say I'm out of here. No, um, I'm much more polite than that. You know, that I used to be in <laughs> recruitment years ago and I had a rule that you had to give a candidate half an hour. Yeah. Um, even though it just it was just a decency rule, my personal rule, but there were That's consultants nice. that I worked with that were basically in and out in five minutes. So. Yeah, I've had some shocking <laughs> 20, 29 minute interviews before. <laughs> no, you, you're right. These are human beings, after all. You got to yes. do right by people. But I think there's there's a lot of inefficiency built into organisations and people, right? And COVID has kind of forced people to look at new ways of doing things. Take for example, um, where I live, uh, there's not a a lot of takeaway choices, right? Or at least there wasn't. But then COVID happens, my favourite little Thai place that was just kind of like, we're not doing delivery, get out of here, come here if you want to eat. They're like, now delivering and that's sort of stayed. So, you know, like... Um, 
there's a lot more serious about COVID than me getting delivered Thai, of course. You know, people have lost, lost their lives and that sort of thing. But it just sort of goes to show that people have been forced to kind of look at the ways that they do business, look for other ways to transact, other ways to survive. And I, I think that that is a net positive for a lot of businesses. But it is very hard when you say to entire industries, you can't trade, you can't do anything. So we will have lost a lot of businesses and people will have lost their livelihoods, you know, mm. the, there's probably a lot more people at the moment that are that have made money um, because there has been almost like a post-pandemic boom for a lot of people. But yeah, we, mm. we, we've lost some some good businesses and a lot of those sort of smaller coffee shops and things like that are unfortunately aren't around anymore. I think for the builders right now, though, they should be having a pretty good time of it because you've got sort of as prices get more expensive and investors are back and this is being... Um, even though we encourage our investors to go nowhere near new property, but a lot of investors do for those depreciation benefits that Mike knows all about. Um, but, you know, they should be, investors are back, you know, in terms of numbers. We can definitely see clients um, asking us, they're thinking, well, I can't upgrade, well, I'm just going to buy an investment property. Or I should have done it two years ago. Investors always come late to the party. They want to see what happened last year and go, oh, wait, I should have done something. And then they get in late yep. uh, in stock markets and property. So, we're definitely seeing more and more clients come to us and say, I want to buy an investment property. Um, so new property should be selling. You know, you should be able to, you know, off the plan sort of spruikers should be having a good day right now <laughs> because investors are back. First home buyers and frustrated um, because they've really missed out on the market in the last couple of years. And they're also encouraged with low interest rates. So they should be out in the market trying to buy apartments. Um, and so, but unfortunately then you've got developers saying, well, I, I, I've got the site but I don't know how much it's going to cost me to build, so mm. I haven't got the guts to go and build it. Um, yeah. And so it should be this real, you know, real boom of building. And, you know, I've looked at some stats and we've just underbuilt so many. You know, we've got a rental crisis, for example. Yeah. Well, that's because we're not, we haven't got enough housing or, um, you know, apartments or across the whole country. So we should, we need to be building a certain amount per year. And I do think this is only going to make it worse because over the next few years, then we're going to add in migration, more demand, less supply. Um, and these issues aren't going to sort of evaporate. But, um, yes, I do feel for the builders at the moment. Um, and also had all the building quality issues. You know, that really yep. was quite prolific. I think a lot of our clients became educated around that and have, have sort of read the papers and it's been in the reports and they've heard, you know, bad stories. And so they're more aware of issues like that. Um, so they're not um, – that's really hurt buildings over the last few years as well. I think it might be good to do a bit another segue into the rental loss index, which we were meant to talk about today, but I changed the topic. Um, what, what have you been working on there, Mike, and um, why is it interesting? Well, what I think is interesting in the rest of the world is sometimes there's a discord, but we'll see how we go, right? So, <laughs> I mean, everyone's familiar with, with vacancy rates uh, and they've obviously been uh, in the news a lot. And, and as you said, the COVID situation has led us to a, a rental crisis on top of a lot of things, right? Inve investors... We're on 20-year lows of activities. We've had a lot of changes, particularly in Victoria, with residential tenancies making it harder. You know, even in Queensland, they're talking about uh, adjustments to the to the land tax uh, situation there. That's disincentivising investors, and you know, there's a lot of investors that have sold their properties as well. Uh, so we've had some real issues there. The, the The rental loss index, I think, had a lot more value uh, when it started than it does today, right? Because there's not a lot of rent losses. So what we're looking at is rental properties that are on the market for 21 days or more without a tenant, right? So we're calling them kind of delinquent rentals. So we're calculating how many of those there are in a particular suburb compared to the no normal pool of rental properties in that area. And then we're looking at the median rents for houses and units. And then we're doing uh, like a, a stratified mean of that. So we're looking at if there's 90% units that are renting for 400 and there's 10% houses that are renting at 600, then we get yeah. an average for that. So the two things it's telling us is what is the average loss due to rental vacancies for investors in a certain suburb and then what is the total loss due to vacant properties in a suburb so one's sort of more about the concentration of investment properties that are not being rented out and the other one is more of a well investors in this suburb are losing on average x amount and the story has been really about the uh, the inner city markets and those markets around universities where you had those one and two bedroom 
bedroom apartment. So a lot of places, you know, like South Yarra and South Bank, like Melbourne was dominating the list for a long time where we saw, of course, you know, high vacancy rates, but just a huge amount of rental stock where international students had disappeared, you know, the Airbnb market kind of disappeared because people couldn't do that. And those properties went back onto the uh, the private rental stock. So the, the rental loss index for me was just really to designed to help investors as part of their kind of due diligence. Am I buying in an area that's got a high rental loss index? So... If you look at vacancy rate as basically, you know, what percentages of, of existing investment stock is available at any given time, yep. and there's that replacement rate as well. It needs to be like, it's got to be above 1%, isn't it? Because um, there's that 1% which is for churn, allows for churn. Yep. Um, and so I guess what you're doing is putting a dollar figure to it to it, and then trying to, to rank yes. these places, right? Because I was actually a bit surprised. Um, you know, I did look at your website, which will pop the um, link in the show notes, and I know not every suburb is in there, <laughs> but it, there was quite a lot that um, – so if it had a zero, is that because it is – there is nobody losing money? Um, no properties are on the market for rent for over 21 days. Is that yep. what that means? Yeah. So so normally uh, it's a decile index ranking from, from 1 to 10, uh, mm. but you can also go and search your suburb and see what the what the rental losses are. So you know, often there are suburbs where there are no vacancies, so there are no um, rental losses, but we're trying to sort of rank it from 1 to 10. And, and, and 10 is not the same as 10, say, in November, right? Because the, mm. the rental losses have, have shrunk shrunk so much the really 10 is just saying you're in the top percentile but i never thought i'd say this but buying an investment property in an area that's currently ranked uh 10 is not necessarily a disaster right now back last year in say october november (laughs) it probably was but there are still pockets where investors aren't necessarily renting out their properties and they tend to be in and around hospitals and universities or they'll be those greenfield greenfield, um, house and land style areas where properties are coming on hard and fast. I mean, it makes sense though, like, but a lot of common sense to investors, um, they don't think it through, right? So, you know, if you sit on buy an apartment in a high rise sort of heaven or hell place um, where there's a lot of um, for rent, um, you know, a lot of people don't just do the search. They go, what are they going to buy it for? But then they go, well, how many places, how many other places are rent? And you can see there's 400 in Rosebury in Sydney and add in Waterloo and Alexandria and well, there's a thousand two bedroom apartments for rent. Yeah. Um, they all look the same. So common sense should say that, you know, it's not a great investment to either sell or to rent, but people still do it. The greenfields also make a lot of sense as well. You know, people making those compromises to move out to these suburbs, they're doing it because they, you know, want to live there long term. They don't want to move there just to rent. They're doing that because they want to own a house. And so yeah. they don't. that's another big problem with the, you know, the people aren't willing to move out there just to rent something. They're only going to move out there if they buy. So what are some of the things that came out with the rental loss index that surprised you, I guess? Because, you know, I guess they're the things that are naturally going to gravitate to the top where you're going to see a lot of vacancy because there's limited demand and lots of supply. Yeah. Well, I, I guess I was surprised at just how strong Melbourne uh, sort of CBD unit markets were for, for rental losses. And what, what I kind of like about uh, the index is like you can have a vacancy rate, but a vacant property in one suburb might cost you 300 a week. In another, it could be 1300 you know, quite easily. So th- this is where putting a dollar value can really sort of show the investor, okay, well, a vacant property in this suburb is actually a lot more painful cash flow-wise than another one. But the, the big thing for me was like, Box Hill um, in Victoria. So when we first put this index together, I kind of thought like my only idea, a a bit like starting a podcast, is I wanted to help investors make sure they weren't making bad decisions. So we we did this index. We got a little bit of media, and I you know shared the data. And then the the journalists um, and you can't blame them said, well, why? Why is Box Hill? And and I didn't have the answers right. So I had to lean on people in the industry and people that knew the area to say. (laughs) Well, what is going on? And the big one, uh, the big 
big correlation was universities. So as you say, it's really obvious in those kind of high-rise markets where there's just so much competition, you know, a place is up for rent and you've got 82 bedroom units in the same building that's the same. That's not going to push the prices up. But I didn't realise how, how, how much of a problem there was around the university. So um, you'll, you guys probably know better than me what the uni is around Box Hill. I can't remember. This is Box Hill, Victoria, right? Box Hill, Victoria. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is a high-rise development. This is like a little, um, you know, if you're on a plane, you'd be like, what the hell is this? It's like 50, 60-storey buildings in the middle of nowhere. Um, that's no offence to anyone who lives around there. But, you know, but it was literally, it just doesn't make sense. I've, I have a friend who was doing, he's been on the podcast, you know, Cameron um, McQueen, back along mm. episodes. He was, that was his office. I went and saw him there and I was just like, <laughs> wow, they're building this high in this location. Um so I do think it's a density issue. It also has a certain, um, you know, community there, I guess, in terms of, and a lot of migration um, probably would flow to that area. So I think the migration numbers have smashed it. Then I think you've got a lot of overseas students that are a certain nationality as well yes. um, would, would smash it as well. So you see a lot of new supply, a lot of investors, a lot of foreign investors as well, which was the previous boom of the 2015, 2016. That's why they were selling it a lot to the Chinese um, community. And um, yeah, so it doesn't surprise me that you've got huge vacancy um, and very little demand, um, especially if you can't rent it to uni students or, or new migrants. So um, yeah, any other sort of pockets that really make, you know, where investors are really losing a lot of money because this isn't money that they're uh, losing, um, you know, in terms of capital value. This is just in terms of cash flow. It's sort of, yes. you know, they should have rented this property out for three months, but it was vacant. Um, and every month they're losing that potential rent, which um, they've also still got to pay all the costs ongoing, right? So all the insurance and maintenance, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. So like, for example, um, just having a look at the the figures uh, for what would have been uh, the January figures, there's just little places that you wouldn't necessarily um, think about or come up very often. One um, that I don't think has got anything to do with high density stuff is South Ripley in Queensland, which is kind of just like south-southwest from north, uh, well, from Ipswich by about uh, probably five, six kilometres. Now, this, um, if you look at the, it on a map, it's all kind of just green, right? But um, it just sort of goes to show that there are these little communities that pop up there that can have these sort of short-term uh, supply issues where there's just a lot of property that's coming on the market straight away. And as you guys would know, you know, there are a couple of buyers agencies or, you know, they might be... Um, <laughs> You know, let's just say the house and land uh, style channel agents that plug into a thousand accountants and financial planners, you know, they're flogging these things off the plan. They all hit the market at once. You know, yeah. you've just got this huge competition for that area. And some of these organisations are big enough that they can just massively influence local markets. You know, there's almost like yeah. an, an announcement effect. So those are the times where I kind of see things pop up in the index and I have to go to Google because I'm like, I'm not sure where South <laughs> where Ripley is. It? Yeah, and, and that that I'm seeing a little bit more. There was another one that popped up um, not too far from Geelong, that not that far ago. So I think that's a, a cautionary tale. You know, a lot of investors are, are electing to buy new. When we started looking that in, uh, that in our data, we were sort of seeing around about thirty four percent of people were buying new in two thousand and thirteen, two thousand and seventeen. It was like forty nine and a half. Yeah, um, and it's not just units, although units have have become a little bit less popular in the last four or five years but you know new property there's always a bit of a red flag on it for me whether it's house and land package or whether it's uh, a, a high-rise development you've just got to be careful about what's coming on at the market at the, at the on the market at that time and and you know scarcity you want scarcity in an investment property <laughs> yeah so, I mean there's one out near you Mike I mean uh, up in Newcastle way aren't you yes yes yeah, I mean, out near sort of Maitland, East Maitland, um, you know, there's, there's this little period where I had a few clients all wanting to buy in the middle of, you know, when I grew up in Newcastle and I'm like, um, that's nowhere near the city. And yeah. they all thought it was, you know, commutable and not that far from the city. And I'm like, uh, that's a long way. Yeah. And it's the middle of nowhere. And if you have a look at the satellite, you can see it's just, you know, farmland. Um, yes. And, you know, that that's the thing they... They've got the advice that this is the location, this is the story, and then they don't go and do the due diligence and, you know, just bring it up on the satellite and think things through. Yeah. Um, but you're right because, you know, they get 50, 100 
develop, uh, you know, houses that get built from a builder. They make a massive margin on them. And then those 50 or, you know, 100 sort of, you know, houses all hit the rental market at the same time. And then everyone's like, well, I don't want to rent out here. Yeah. Um, and then they just sit there vacant. And so those would be a lot of losses because, um, you know, as a percentage, they all add up. So that doesn't surprise me. There's these little, you know, danger yeah. zones and pockets that pop up where um, investor spruikers have, have um, caused some damage. It's, it's I love, a, sorry, oh, I love the fact we've got a quantity surveyor here. Somebody actually sort of effectively makes a living uh, calculating people's depreciation for tax. And, and as we all know, the brand new stuff gets the maximum amount of depreciation uh, benefits for those um, investors. And I use the word investors quite loosely here. Um, so I love the fact that you've said don't buy brand new, even though for you it means more work. Yeah. <laughs> but oh, yeah. I think that... Um, <laughs> I think that – where was I going now? I've totally forgotten. I just realised my phone was um, not on silent, so I got distracted. Oh, dear. In the middle of my question. Hang on. <laughs> it's all right. Oh, Is it $10 cost for every edit? No, no, yeah. <laughs> um, what's interesting to distinguish, though, is your rental loss in index isn't around the depre- – or the capital – what do you call it? Hang on. What's interesting to – What's interesting to distinguish, though, is your rental loss index is around the vacancy and what that vacancy costs people in that area on those median rents, right? Mm. As opposed to losing money um, so you can negatively gear. Uh, and yeah. So it's a totally different concept of loss in a terms of uh, a property. And oh, we could do, and we have done many, 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 many times, talked about negative gearing and why that is not a reason to buy a property. It's just a nice little benefit if it so happens that... Uh, that you, your cash flow doesn't actually cover the cost of owning that property in the short term. Um, but vacancy is a real risk, right? So it is yeah. something that you, you should you really need- be thinking about it. And clients will come to me and they'll say, oh, uh, and it, I can understand their thinking and so it, it makes sense. Like this property would be easy to rent. So I'm going to buy it because it's easy to rent. Um, generally speaking, it's not that easy to rent, to be honest. Um, when you break it down, you look at the property they're going to buy and you look what's on the market maybe they wouldn't mind renting it and they think it's cheap and things like that, but those are usually the cheaper ones, the more affordable ones, um, the newer ones are the hardest ones to rent. Um, and well, so... it's easy because it's got a new kitchen. Well, yeah. yeah they, and there's a, a toilet that nobody's sat on. Yeah, there's a fallacy there that they think it's easy to rent. So I just sort of break that apart. So I do a quick search and say, well, you know, there's 500 of those to rent right now. So I don't think it's that easy to rent them. They've been on the market for three or four weeks. But... My belief is that a good quality asset is actually very hard to buy, but it's actually also very hard to rent. And so you shouldn't ever have a pro- good assets will also have no problems with vacancy. If anything, whenever your tenant decides to leave, um, you know, and every if property shouldn't have problems with vacancy, you know, good properties, because you can always drop your rent, you know. So maybe you've been able to increase your rent because when you listed it, it was a perfect time and you got this really big offer. But, you know, a good asset doesn't really ever have a problem with vacancy. It usually gets a better tenant, you know, because it's usually a bit more expensive and there's usually scarcity there and you can pick and choose who you want. Um, And so it's not a reason to buy a property because you think it's easy to rent, but good assets usually have no problem renting. Um, And, you know, because the the tenants stay a long time as well. They're like, well, why would I move out of this place? This is amazing. Um, (laughs) You know, if I try to rent something else, I look online, I can't see anything as good as what I'm renting. I'm just going to stay here. There's no point upsetting the, the card. So, um, yeah, I think vacancy, tracking that and making people more aware of that is a really interesting thing because they actually are real losses, you know, the income they should have been getting, then they've got to pay maintenance. Um, and this is another problem I see with people going down the quantity strategy. Maintenance is... It's, it's got a lot of money on smaller and cheaper properties, isn't it, Mike? You yeah. know, to fix the tap or, you know, change the toilet or, you know, that's quite, you know, similar across, you know, if it's a cheap asset yeah. or it's an expensive asset. Um, maintenance can really kill you on, you know, the, the cheaper properties. Yeah, and some some awesome points there, there Chris. I think maintenance is, is one of those things people get sort of excited sometimes because it's an instant write-off. You know, you can claim 100% of it in the first year, but you've still got to have the money in your pocket. People don't kind of necessarily yeah. realise. And, you know, people do buy properties because the, the depreciation is solid. As much as I've spent 10 or 15 years saying not to do that, and I probably love depreciation more than anyone else in the world, it's not a reason to buy. And by the same to- token, 
and you know vacancies isn't necessarily the sole reason to buy but there's a solid correlation that if it's in demand by renters it's going to be in an area where there's demand for owner occupiers and and other investors so the property should go up in value so if your rental loss index is six and there's another place that's maybe four i'm not saying buy the one that's four because the capital growth has got to be factored in right like there could be some variance to it but i do think it's an important little part of the the checklist to just understand it because it is a cash flow loss you do actually have to make that up some somewhere somehow you know a property that rises eight percent in a year compared to one that rises six percent in a year that doesn't involve you putting your hand in your pocket for that two percent but the rent absolutely does mm. and i think where it's really prolific is is obviously the commercial market we're going to do an episode on that in a few weeks but you know the vacancy in commercial markets to fill that um, you know, it could be a lot of money. You've got issues with banks, you know, potentially um, reviewing your loans. Um, you know, the whole value of it is based on your lease, mm. et cetera. Um, and so it's something you really need to be aware of, you know, if you've got commercial because you could have bought it with a five-year lease and it could have been um, a great investment. You could have paid a premium for it because it was a really got all these rent increases in the contract and then your tenant leaves at the end of it and if you've got vacancy, that whole asset gets revalued. And Yeah. Um, so vacancy is a huge issue in the commercial market. Yeah, it's a much bigger one, isn't it? Because, um, you know, there's always a demand for people with – a place that they need to live. But, you know, whole industries can decide to outsource or go online or shrink mm. or something. So, you know, that's why there's that risk-reward difference, right? You know, you typically get a lot higher uh, yields on commercial, but, you know, it's yeah. a double-edged sword sometimes. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm often having an argument with people about cash flow versus capital growth when it comes <laughs> to residential property, but the reality is, like Chris said, cash flow is important, you know, and people do need to be a, a, across uh, the cash flow and so therefore you don't want high vacancy rates. But also I think the, the and I've said it many times, that unfortunately residential property investing is really, it's, it, it is a rich person's sport, you know, yeah. rightly or wrongly, the, the fact is that if you go and buy cheap assets that are risky, often it doesn't pay off, you know, for the person that's trying to make themselves wealthy through property. So it's a it's a tough one because in order to buy that high quality asset, you're going to need the cash flow from your income to be able to support that asset for the period of time until it actually does get to become cash flow neutral and, and move into positive. But that can take 10 years yeah. if it's a good asset in, in a in a really good area. So it, it, it is a, a challenge. You do want it rented out. Yeah. <laughs> well, the big danger for investors right now is that um, they can't afford to do the upgrade or they can't afford even to buy their first home, you yeah. know, um, because they don't want to, for example, change their lifestyle or maybe they can't easily with their work and their opportunities and their family, etc. So they're forced to rent long term and this will, you know, a big price rise of the property increases that um, and they go, well, I've got this money in the bank, I need to get it working. Um, and then they start looking to investments, you know, and they potentially don't want to spend a lot of money on the investment because maybe they want to upgrade the home one day and they don't want to use it all and, you know, don't want to have a huge mortgage and just want it to cover itself and to be positively geared, et cetera. And so I, I can't think it's a buy real... a if I buy a really expensive one. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. And we, we can already see that, you know, just through new people coming to us and, um, you know, what they're thinking about doing and how we reframe their thinking and, you know, talk about maybe they should just focus on that home like we did today with a client, you know, dragged them back to the strategy um, because they all sort of got that money burning in their pocket. They've been looking for a couple of years and um, they're just starting to go and try to want to invest the money. So it's a real issue at the moment. Have you got a property dumbo for us, Mike? Oh, yeah. Look, I think um, that chappy who had the policy, his last name was Dick. I always remember that because there's a correlation between the sort of thought process for that land tax policy and his surname. Um, he was the guy that was talking about uh, adjusting the the land tax calculation in, in Queensland to include land that you have exposure to in other states. I think mm -hmm. when we've got a national uh, rental affordability crisis and record low vacancy rates, uh, Queensland are sort of saying, investors, we don't really want your business here is, is a is a bad move. Now, I'd love to think that the government is going to, to step in and investors aren't the only ones that can provide this accommodation, but it's just traditionally not been the, the, the case. They don't own anywhere near enough uh, stock for, to, to make any difference. So I think that was a dick of a policy from, from a chap named Dick. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. 
<laughs> oh, I mean, the land tax issues and changes, um, there's lots that needs to change there, right, in terms of the you know, encouraging more investors and, you know, because this is what's going to cause it, you know, solve a rental crisis. But, you know, there are potential changes of land tax to, well, stamp duty to land tax in, in, in New South Wales. It's sort of been forgotten about over the last 12 months. If those things happen, that would be a huge thing for demand. So I think it's uh, any changes to these policies is good to be sort of being across. Oh, it's it's a good discussion piece and I should be fair fair to you. I just I don't think that's necessarily a good a good idea in the current market. Uh, the the conversation about whether it should be uh, an annual subscription based land tax or an upfront one. I, I think it's a great it's a great idea to get out there to consultation. There's some really good positives to it in, in freeing up the little old ladies to, to downsize and, and that sort of thing. Um, so I'm always happy uh, for there to be a discussion about how to make it more efficient. Awesome, Mike. So good to have you on. It's a big issue with the building costs and um, you know it's, it's enlightening to sort of see what's happening with the vacancies, I guess, because... Yeah, they're real losses for people. So thanks for coming on, Mike. Pleasure, mate, as always. And thanks, Veronica. And if you need a swimming pool, get in touch. <laughs> You're going to set up a side business, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to take a sweet little 15% off the top and it's all yours. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.